Hey everybody, it's good to be with you this morning. It's my favorite spot to be here, talking to our college students at our church. And this is, this is a huge chapter uh, in the life of our ministry, one that uh, I am very familiar with, both in the nature of this chapter. It's a famous chapter in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5, as you turn there in your Bible, and in the consequences of ignoring what it's saying. We live in a world that is actively promoting what they consider to be the greatest and highest and most noble of all things, and that is love. We live in a world that is consumed with love. And love is that noble thing that is at the heart of seemingly every political view, every movement in legislature, every concern is wrapped up in love, even in a, a mantra that people put in their front yard that says, love is love. In this house, we believe a whole list of things, and it says that love is love. You've heard that phrase, you've seen that phrase, and I wonder what you think of it when Hamilton, the musical, won the Emmy, when Lin-Manuel Miranda won the Emmy. He read a poem because there was a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub I think that weekend, and it was kind of a powerful moment and a very solemn moment, and his poem concluded with the line, love is 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 love, cannot be killed or swept aside. And that kind of emotional plea was a reminder to our world that the agenda of our society today is one that flattens and elevates love to a place of ultimate authority. In other words, any expression that is called love is warranted, acceptable. Any expression of sexual freedom, any expression of romantic love is praised and ought not to be judged or assessed because love, in that little phrase, love is love, means that love is ultimate. The problem is, is love is not ultimate. Love is something that is not an end to itself. Love is love sounds powerful, but in fact, the concept lacks truth. Because I want to give you another phrase that maybe you're more familiar with, and I can preach without the microphone if we can fix that. Or I can hold it down here maybe if that's better. I'll do whatever it takes. Is that better? You tell me what to do. It's better just hang it right there? It's awesome. Who knew? Okay, I'll do that. So... I want to give you another phrase 
Love is love. You know that one? It's in the yard signs. This one's from the book of Exodus. God says to Moses in Exodus 3, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Remember what God answered? He said, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That phrase is how God identifies himself. And it doesn't make sense to our ears because you can't say that about yourself. You can't say when you introduce yourself, I am who I am. You need a name. You need some qualifier. The reason God can say, I am who I am, is because He is the ultimate end of everything. He is the source of everything. He is self-defining, self-existent. God is is a sentence that can sit by itself because he's God. Nothing came before him, and everything that came after him comes from his self-existence. Now, this sounds kind of philosophical and weird, but I want you to connect the love-is-love concept that says that the highest authority is love, the ultimate end is love, and help you understand that God is actually the highest authority. God is actually the self-existent one. And what we understand about love comes from what we know from the one who is God and love flows from Him. Maybe you're thinking, well, doesn't the Bible say that God is love? And you're right, the Bible does say that God is love. But the Bible doesn't say that love is God. And if our definition of love is at the highest point, and that as long as something is an act of love or in the name of love, then it's acceptable, it's good for society, it's something that we should embrace and cherish and guard and protect, then we've made God into something He's not. We've taken God from his place of self-existence, from his first authority kind of a place, the one who is before all things, and we put love there instead of love flowing from God. So that's kind of a philosophical introduction to Proverbs chapter 5, but it would be easy for me to list all the sexual chaos in our society that's put forward in the name of love. And... Whether that's you know, a billion-dollar pornography empire or whether that's uh, the movement of our society towards the acceptance of, of gay marriage or trans stuff or, or whatever it is, I can list those things for you. I feel like it's not that necessary because we're all swimming in a world that's marked by sexual chaos. And the starting point of this thing isn't me to list a bunch of stuff that's wrong, a bunch of people that don't get it, a bunch of policies that are are incorrect. The starting point of this 
is the question of what is your authority? Because if, if love, just a subjective concept of love, is your authority, well, no wonder you're going to have sexual chaos in your society. The, the family, the kind of the most miniature version of what society is, a little group of people that live together, that have order and that have uh, def- definition in them, that that's, if you have a family, you have the beginning of a society. If a family is undermined, then a society is undermined. That, that's how that works. And when you, when you have an incorrect starting point, that love is the source and origin and ultimate end of all things, then you're not going to have a society that is built and ordered in a way that God intended it to be built and ordered. And this isn't just true of, of our sexuality. This is true of every part of our life. And that's what the book of Proverbs has been trying to teach us. The book of Proverbs is consumed with this concept at the very beginning. To know wisdom and instruction, chapter 1, verse 2. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior. It's simply a book about how to live in a way that honors God. How to live in a, in a way that's godly, that's righteous. How to live in a way that is matching up with how God made this world. And He made it so that the world would work according to His plan. And because of the fall of man, because of sin entering the world, because of rebellion in our own hearts, because of our own sinful tendencies and proclivities, we know that this world is a messed up place. But here we have the book of Proverbs trying to set us right on all kinds of things. The way we speak and the the way that we engage in business. The Proverbs are concerned about our relationship with our parents, with the way that we would engage our neighbors. There's no topic that the Proverbs aren't afraid to breach. And it was in the very first chapter that we started to learn that the Proverbs were going to meddle in our lives as it relates to how we relate to one another romantically. Remember that? The description in chapter 1 about the, the wayward one and the adulterous one was a warning that was given right away to the son. And by the time we get to chapter 5 and 6 and 7, that seems to become one of the most significant ways that a young man, who this book is trying to talk to, can go off course. A young man can go off course in the way he understands God's plan for marriage, which is how he understands God's plan for society. It's how he understands God's plan for love. And if love is at the center and end and culmination of everything, if love is the origin and source, then love becomes our God. But love is not God. God is love. And God is God. And so, to go about marriage, sexuality, human relationships wrongly, is to undermine how God made this world. This isn't difficult for us to see in our own experiences. Maybe you, likely you, like me, come from an imperfect family. There was hardly any Christian, Christians in my family. My aunts and uncles and most of my grandparents and going way back, there's not a ton of Christians. 
And my parents didn't have an ideal marriage. And it was one that had effects on our family. And I, I wonder if that's a lot of you. Maybe you come from a, a divorced family. Maybe you come from a family where there was some adultery or something like that that happened that tore your family apart. Maybe your parents have, have left each other and married other people and you've suffered the consequences of that. Maybe you were a little kid when it happened. Maybe it's happening in your life right now. And what Proverbs chapter 5 has for all of us that come from these imperfect families, and every family is imperfect, is a warning about adultery of all things. And it uses adultery as an illustration. It's trying to show us that Adultery is just one example of when people walk on a path that God has not set before them. Golden Gay, my favorite commentary on, on the Proverbs, he says to understand stupidity, that's a synonym for what the Proverbs call folly. It's a less fancy word. Religious people say folly. Golden Gay says stupidity. To understand stupidity, think of adultery. To understand adultery, Think of stupidity. And so this whole chapter is illustrating what the whole Proverbs have been teaching us, which is there's only two ways to live. You live God's way, or you live a way of self-centered chaos. And adultery becomes an example of what this looks like because adultery destroys families and imperils society and fails to image God rightly. This message is a message about infidelity to a bunch of single people. And my hope would be that if you hear the words of Proverbs 5, maybe they will help you see something that's preparatory, something that's so far in advance. I mean, for most of you, it feels like marriage is, is far away, but it's, it's not as far away as you think it is. But for most of you, marriage seems like something kind of theoretical and, and long off, but I wonder if, if you could hear the voice of God in Proverbs 5 and make some solemn determinations, develop some deep convictions about the kind of husband or wife you'll be. I wonder if you'll look at your present life, your relationship to things like lust, pornography, other brothers and sisters in Christ, the way you think about how marriage should work, and you'll submit it to God. And I wonder if convictions could be formed from Proverbs chapter 5 that would impact you now in such a way that it would enrich your marriage someday and maybe even rescue it from certain doom because that's what adultery has. This chapter is about more than adultery because adultery is about more than adultery. I mean, to think of the words of, of our Lord Jesus and how he describes the nature of sexual sin in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, right? That's the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body go to hell. The next verse, verse 31 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, 
Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, Jesus takes all of these sins back to a root cause of lust, a root cause of of a broken and distorted understanding of the place of romantic love. And what it offers to us isn't just warnings, like don't do bad stuff. Instead, it presents this compelling and beautiful portrait of what marriage is supposed to be like. Idealized and invented in the Garden of Eden, marriage comes from paradise. And God designed it for our protection and holiness and His glory and for an end greater than itself. And so, it's with that kind of in mind, I want to dive into Proverbs chapter 5. A chapter that I hope becomes precious to you in your battle against sin. A chapter that I hope will become formative for you in the way that you think about marriage. Because ultimately your parents' example, whether it was good or bad, is not going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But Proverbs 5 is. And so, less than your opinions about marriage, less than your opinions about what would make a a marriage good and healthy and happy, what a family should be built on, is God's definition of it. And He's the one who defined it and invented it, created it, blessed it, and images it to show us the gospel and ultimately participates in it in some sort of grand marriage, he calls it, between Jesus and the church. And so there's something here greater than perhaps we realize. It's not just a a finger wagging like, hey, kids, don't make out so much. It's not the vibe. Instead, Proverbs 5 is, is telling you If you could put God at the center of everything, if He was your treasure, if He mattered to you more than anything else in this world, then you would build the entirety of your life around Him. The way that you speak and live and love and marry would bring honor and glory to God. And when it does, it would give you extraordinary blessing and joy, and happiness, and peace. All the Proverbs are saying the same thing. You can have wisdom, which is godly living, or you can have stupidity and go to hell. I mean, that's so strong, but that's what it says. So let me show you Proverbs chapter 5 in just kind of a simple outline. And it's my prayer that it's helpful to you to develop these convictions, especially at a young age, before you're married, before you're engaged, before your parents betroth you for whatever price they're going to do that, if you come from that kind of a world, that you will have this, this baseline conviction that's centered on God and understanding the glory and beauty of marriage and also highly aware and on guard against the dangers of fatal attraction. So that's Proverbs chapter 5. Let me start by reading it to you. My son, start, I've been talking for 30 minutes. What am I talking about? Proverbs chapter five. My son, can I put this back on yet? Do you think I'm safe? 
feeling dangly and weird? You think I'm okay? Think I'm good? Risk it? Let's go. It's probably the beard got too mangy. I try to go feral before our, our pastor's conference and then kind of clean it up. Okay, Proverbs 5. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion, that your lips may reserve knowledge. So what you just saw there, and let me give you a a heading to start out with, verses 1 through 6 are wisdom and unfaithfulness, or wisdom and fatal attraction, wisdom and fatal attraction, verses 1 through 6. Those first two verses sound like everything we've heard so far. It sounds like the beginning of chapter 4. O sons, hear the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. It sounds like chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. It sounds like chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. It sounds like chapter 1. The book of Proverbs just keeps repeating itself, telling the son in these speeches to listen to wisdom. And remember, wisdom is skillful, godly living. It's the difference between knowing your right hand and your left hand. It's the difference between knowing what's up and what's down. It's what's right and what's wrong. That's wisdom. It knows how to navigate, how to live, how to, how to work, how to marry, all of it. And so he says, give attention to wisdom. Bend your ear to my understanding. That's that word for discernment or to build something, to build a worldview, to build a life to build right choices. Verse 2, that you may observe discretion, that your lips may reserve knowledge. Knowledge is that word that he's using to key into this new discussion. When we talk about sex in our culture, we talk about sleeping together, sleeping around. In the Hebrew Bible, they don't use that phrase. If you say that person is sleeping to a person in the Old Testament, it means that they're dead. So it's a totally different euphemism, right? In the Hebrew Bible, the word is knowledge. Knowledge is intimacy. It's why in Genesis chapter 4, it says Adam knew his wife. That is the concept of closeness, of that kind of knowledge. And so the father says that your lips may reserve knowledge, a word of intimacy. He also uses the word lips there provocatively to link it to the lips mentioned in verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. So, already I wonder if you're thinking, why is this blaming her? Right? I think that's how the modern eye reads Proverbs 5. Like, it's totally beating up on the adulterous woman. Well, what about the dude? So I'll give you two answers for that. One, the book of Proverbs is written directly and predominantly to the son. So it's not talking to the the girls directly, but indirectly. And so as this father speaks to his son, he's warning his son about this woman and the choices that he needs to make. So it isn't trying to shirk responsibility off of the son. It's not trying to blame the adulterous woman. He's trying to equip him to navigate a world full of sexual danger. So that's one answer. The second answer is it doesn't let the son off the hook. Instead, it warns him directly about, verse 21, he must watch his path. He must 
guard his life. And so this isn't some kind of blame where we need to approach this with with equal attention paid to both parties. No, this is talking about this young man being equipped to understand the dangers that are out there and to be compelled by the glory of marriage as God intended it to be. And so he talks about the lips of the adulteress dripping honey and smooth speech like oil. This is a common phrase in Hebrew chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 7, verse 5. The whole point of it is that the allurement so often in violating one's marriage vows isn't the physical attraction ultimately. It's some kind of use of words that promise and build up an insecure man and tell him how good he is, how desirable he is. And it's these words that are coming into focus. Not the, not the woman or her physique or anything like that, but instead it's what she says to him. And the father is warning his son, don't listen to lies. He's trying to equip him to help him understand that the real danger here is that these lips are full of error and he needs to have lips of truth, verse 2, because the best defense against immorality is actually to guard your speech. I wonder if you think like that. Certainly, a covenant with your eyes to not look lustfully at a woman is part of it. But most significantly, it's, it's your speech that tells how you actually think and feel. Your speech is representative of your heart. And so is hers. And so the son is told to watch his mouth in verse 2 and watch her mouth in verse 3 because ultimately the end of what she's trying to accomplish will not be sweet like honey, but it will be toxic like wormwood. Wormwood is a toxic herb, and apparently it smells kind of good. But it's got a great name, wormwood. And that alluring smell is what has brought it to a place of danger. And so this forbidden relationship is equated with a toxic herb that seems harmless and seems alluring, but actually leads to death. Verse 4 says, this dangerous woman is as sharp as a sword. This is talking about outcomes. Already talking about the end. Verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Uh, Sheol sometimes translated hell. It just means death in the grave. Verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't even know it. It really shows that she, in some ways, is a hapless victim of her worldview. And when it speaks of the end of being death, the end being Sheol, it's a reminder that these relationships that are against the will of God, that these opportunities in sexual immorality are actually camouflaged. They appear to be something beautiful and romantic, something alluring, something that builds you up and gives you life. But when the camo is gone, you see what's really going on here is death. 
The Proverbs are consumed with outcomes, by the way. I mean, that's why verse 11 of this same chapter says, you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Flip with me for a minute here. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. It says, there's a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may be in pain and the end of joy may be grief. Go over to 16, chapter 16, verse 25. I just want to show you this one thing. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end of its way is death. Chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Chapter 20, verse 21. says, An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. I could do 10 more of those, but I feel like that's the point. The foolish person, the person who doesn't listen to God's wisdom, is failing to account most often not for what's right in front of them. Like this girl who wants to seduce you into sexual immorality, this relationship that seems alluring and attractive, that this seems like a good thing. What's missing is the perspective of the Proverbs, which has to do with the end. The Proverbs want you to get a different perspective on your marriage. Because when you get married, you'll probably be young and vital and attractive. But the idea is is that you'll stay married when you both look like shriveled potatoes. Like way down the road, right? Unless you take good care of your skin. And if you think about the end, you think past the initial attraction, you think past the, the passionate moment, and you think towards things that last. What do we have in common? What's the purpose of our lives? Who is God to us? What are children for? How are they to be raised? Will we pray for them? What will become of their children? What will our contribution to this world be? I mean, those are like deeper, wiser questions than, I think she's hot. I I get that. But is there any way you could take a breath, take a step back, and look from a higher altitude at the outcome of your life? That's a profound warning that's happening here. He's trying to show you this relationship of sexual immorality looks attractive and it seems sweet like honey, but if you could only see what was down the road, a cliff and a fiery death, you wouldn't go on that road. And so the Proverbs are always consumed with the end of things. And so the link here in verses 1 through 6 is wisdom and this fatal attraction. He's trying to offer his son the right perspective, the godly perspective, and not fall into this unfaithful and dangerous perspective. That's what's happening here. And trying to understand the trying to understand the, the end of things, the outcome of things, changes everything. 
Let's look at this next section, verses 7 through 14. And it just tells you that here's what happens when you have adultery in a relationship. It becomes a total disaster. What follows adultery is disaster. Verse 7 to 14. This isn't complicated. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house or you'll give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you're grown at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how have I hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. Verse 13, I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. It's an interesting way to talk about the outcome of adultery. When a marriage is violated, there's obviously broken hearts, broken relationships, a broken family. But he tries to equate it with economics and society, which you could understand, like, you know, ain't got no prenup in the words of your own poets. So, you know, in that way, you understand there's like a financial implication to ending a marriage. But I don't think that's what he has in mind, it's just the immediate financial consequences when he talks about the the strangers are filled with your strength, your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. What he's talking about is, is where I was mentioning at the very beginning. He sees in verses 7 through 10 a societal and financial loss that comes in the way of foreigners. And it's like, what does this mean to us? Like, that's hard. We don't, we don't have a worldview that, that makes any sense. But then in verses 11 through 14, it's a societal and financial loss in terms of the community. So when you're looking at the Proverbs, you're looking at a covenantal document. You're looking at something that happened within a nation that God chose called Israel, that the people of God who had a special relationship with God, and they were to think about their relationship with God as a unique one. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, an example to all the nations, that they would all come and worship the one true God. That's why Jesus came, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It was God's mission to save the world, and he did so through his people. And so the way they think about everything, and this is the right way they were supposed to think, is they were supposed to think about how this related to their relationships with one another, which is why the Ten Commandments have five commandments about God and five commandments about their neighbors and how they relate to one another. And then they were supposed to think about how their relationship with one another and with God looked to an outside world. In that way, it sounds pretty familiar to us as Christians, right? We're supposed to have love for one another, concern for one another, serving one another. But then we also have a mindfulness for a watching world to be a good example to them of Christ's love and compassion. And so in a similar way, he's showing you that this one violation of a covenant of marriage of vows made before God and man, of a woman and a man who come together to love each other and to serve each other and give praise and honor to God and raise a family, when that relationship is broken and ripped apart, there is a shockwave of impact that happens across society, first among the people of God and then outside the people of God. This is provocative way of thinking because 
there's so much you know talk now about well what is marriage what what who can get married you know what should three people get married can two dudes get married 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 what's what's it come from well our worldview isn't a political one we don't have some kind of political you know philosophy of marriage that that we're really concerned about the constitution i mean our understanding as christians of marriage comes from the one who invented it in the garden of eden creating it for man's happiness and holiness and for god's glory he he made a perfect world and he said it's not good that man is alone and so he created a woman for man and that was the first family the first marriage i officiate a lot of weddings I'm like Vegas because y'all just keep falling in love. And I like officiating weddings. I get to stand at the, right at the front. I get a great seat for the wedding. And I've told you this before, but I always conclude the wedding by saying, you may kiss your bride. And then I do something, a patented move. If you ever do this, if you ever officiate a wedding, you do my move, you owe me 25 cents. So I do a patented move called the Duncan slide. I go like this because I I had officiated weddings in the past, and I saw pictures of this couple kissing, and I'm like, <laughs> right in the mix. It's just, it's not, it's not my place. I don't want to be right there. So I do the Duncan slide, and the more I slide, the better. And they kiss, and they get the picture, and then I say, presenting to you, these two. So I, I, do, I do a lot of, of weddings. What was my point? Um, <laughs> the point is this. When a couple comes together, there's something incredible happening there. Something that isn't just impacting two people. You learn right away it impacts two families. Because when you marry somebody, you marry their family too. Like it links you guys up for the rest of your lives to something you will affectionately refer to as your in-laws. And that drama of these two families coming together... Like it happens way before even the rehearsal dinner. There's all kinds of dynamics interplaying. And some of them are are a blessing and some of them are a challenge. And when these families come together, then there's there's more people because that's why you have these things called cousins, right? That's when your siblings get married. And it becomes this whole family thing. And you see it most clearly at Christmas and Thanksgiving and Stuff like that. But that is a little tiny portrait of how marriage actually is at the center of the entire community. Because what's a city? What's a bunch of people that live in traffic, right? Well, those people that live in traffic have relationships that are intertwined with one another. And the way God intended marriage to be is a protection for the man and the woman to each other and to their progeny, their offspring, to their relationships, to their families, to their neighborhood, to their city, to their community. And in God's grand design, when he made this thing in paradise, he wanted it to be built on a faithful promise and a premise That marriage isn't an end to itself. It's something God made for human happiness and holiness. And one of the weird things I do when I officiate a wedding is I send you something as you're you're preparing called the mega wedding email. That's what I title it. The mega wedding email. Hyphenated mega wedding. And in it I say, 
a list of things. But one of the things I say is I don't prefer you to write your own vows. And it makes some of the kids sad because they've seen movies where you write your vows and it's like, you know, deep stuff, good stuff. And if you wrote your own vows, if you're a married person here today, I'm not mad at you. I'm sure they were awesome. But I don't prefer to have you write your own vows. And sometimes they'll say, okay, that's fine. And other times they'll push back a little and say, but why? And I have two reasons. One reason. Usually there's a whole lot of snot and crying. It's very emotional and it doesn't go well. It's a combination of high emotions, public speaking, Kleenex. It's a hot mess. No one can hear what they're saying. They're flubbing all over each other. And that's just the dude. He's just, I promise. And so I'm trying to help him. Like, it's not, it's not going to be your easiest speech day. But there's a theological reason behind it. And I'm not making a law here, but it's just my preference. I don't want them to define the terms of their marriage. Because you'll say something like, I promise on this day where you look the best you'll ever look that I'll never go to bed angry. Mm, It's a noble aim, but it's probably not going to happen. And when it doesn't, you just broke your marriage vows. Like, that's a problem. So why don't we let God define them? And so I like to use some vows that are like 500 years old, Church of England vows. And in it is a line that says, to cleave unto thee and to thee only. And that's old school. It's an old school word that just means, I understand that this marriage and this union is one that needs to be separated only by death, never by sin, never by a wayward heart, never by the allure and promise of another, but a kind of commitment and love for one another that no matter what happens to us or around us, we'll always stay committed and faithful to one another. Because when that doesn't happen, disaster breaks forth. In verses 7 through 14, it's called utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. But what it usually looks like is just staying at your parent, your dad's house on the weekend and your mom's house during the week. What it looks like is financial ruin. What it looks like is bad feelings. What it looks like is the end of something that God did not intend to end. So thirdly, verses 15 to 19. It's not just negative stuff. It's Now he shows what, what follows from faithfulness. What follows from faithfulness or the joy of a faithful marriage or marital fidelity. And this is a beautiful passage. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Water is a euphemism for uh, romantic love. And you'll see it here. Drink water from your own cistern. What's a cistern? A cistern is a well. It's where they got water from. And we get water from all over the place. We get boxed water and essential water and aguafina and aquafina, aguafina. In Espanol, it's aguafina. Uh, we get, you know, smart water, vapor distilled. We, we get water from all kinds of places. In the ancient world, water was hard to come by. 
and it was privatized. In other words, someone owned it. And so if there was a cistern, it wasn't like, hey, there's a cistern for everybody. No, that was somebody's cistern. Like that faucet belongs to that guy. And so if you're going to use it, you need his permission. That's why those weird interactions with camels in the Old Testament and like, can I water my camels? Like that, that was like, I mean, you are using their water. The idea behind drink water from your own cistern is a reminder that this marriage is privatized. There's discretion there. There's privacy there. There's a kind of faithful covering that takes place in romantic love that isn't to be out there. It's not to be uh, indiscreet. It's not to be um, blasted all over the place. The idea is, is that this is a relationship that is to be protected and guarded and privatized. It's exclusive. And so he tells his son to drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? You guys know who Warren G. Harding is? Warren G. is a rapper when I was in high school. Warren G. Harding is the 20, I don't know, sixth president of the United States or so. Warren G. Harding. He looks like the butler from uh, that Downton Abbey. Big hawk nose, dark black eyebrows. He was a very popular president. Uh, he died in office and the nation grieved. In review, historians say he wasn't a great president. Uh, and as kind of information came out, there'd been rumors about Warren G. Harding uh, being a, well a playa. He had a wife. He called her the Duchess, real romantic name. And he cheated on her is what people said. Uh, he wrote these like kind of middle school, no offense to anyone in middle school, um, middle school kind of romance letters to this lady that were kind of, kind of coarse and inappropriate. And, and some of those came out after he died and people said, oh, we think this guy was a bad dude, Warren G. Harding. I have a friend who pastors the church that Warren G. Harding uh, grew up at. Warren G. Harding is the only Baptist Republican president we've ever had, and he was a bad, lecherous dude. And the reason we know for sure isn't just his kind of naughty letters that came out. It's because there's all kinds of people today who've taken DNA tests and find out that they're related to Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding was doing all kinds of bad stuff. He had ladies everywhere. This was a really sketchy president, up to really sketchy things, and his adultery didn't keep the water in his own White House. Instead, his springs were dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets. And now his legacy is one of lechery, one of adultery, one of illegitimacy. That's what verse 16 is saying. Verse 17, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. When I was 26 years old, I wrote Marilee's name right there. And it's still written there in my Bible. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love or intoxicated always with her love. What's being shown here isn't supposed to be you know, saucy or 
you know, super sexy. Instead, what's being shown here is something that's put in language that's appropriate and veiled and beautiful. And it's showing you that the desires that you have as a young person in their purest and godliest form are intended by God to be beautiful and lovely and fulfilling, part of God's good gift and design for you to be known and understood and loved in a way that is exclusive and only for you and for her. That's what's so alluring about the biblical conception of marriage. That's what's so beautiful about what's being offered. You see, the Bible isn't just trying to stop you from having fun. It's trying to put guardrails and boundaries on your life so that you can experience a more full joy that experiences the the thrilling uh, romance intended in marriage that is far deeper and more long-lasting and more rewarding and more excellent as time goes on. That's why people who've been married for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years will testify that they love each other more than they did in the first year of their marriage. And it's because love is beyond just these physical descriptions that are most appropriate in those opening years of marriage and youthfulness, exhilaration, but are deepened by true beauty, which is sacrifice and scars and shared trials and joys and 10,000 things that were whispered and cried over and experienced together in this covenant that has each other's best in mind. That's what God is offering to you. And to accept a lesser substitute is to just dump the water all over the place. Instead, it's supposed to be this protected spring that's private and blessed and beautiful and honored by God. Well, how does he wrap this up? Well, verses 15 to 23 talk about the lasting delight of a faithful marriage. The lasting delight of a faithful marriage. What follows from adultery is what was shown to us earlier. Now what follows from this faithful marriage being described Verse 15 to 19 is that beautiful section. And then as you get into verse 20 to uh, 23, it all concludes with this word about unfaithfulness and folly and stupidity. So you have these two roads before you, two paths, that of sexual chaos or that of covenant fidelity. And so how does he wrap it up? Verse 20. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he'll be held in the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. I mean, it's a really blatant kind of ending, isn't it? He's simply telling us that the Lord upholds all moral order. 
That you can either live your way or you can live God's way. That you can receive the consequences of following your own path or you can follow the path that God has laid out for you. And I think it's here that it's especially important to point to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. No one in this room, no one is a perfect, chaste, pure, undefiled person. All of us sinners by nature and by choice. Some have messed up big time in their sexual lives. Some have so filled their mind with with images that haunt them and will haunt them for decades to come. And what I offer to you isn't like a restart button. What I offer to you is a totally different path. I wonder if you'd leave behind pornography and illicit sexual relationships and 10,000 different relationships that, that you would entertain. I wonder if you'd leave behind being driven by lust and greed. And I wonder if you would trade that path for a path of purity and God-honoring understanding of what Jesus is offering you is forgiveness and grace. Marriage isn't an end to itself. In other words, we're not Mormons. You don't stay married forever in heaven and then get 12 more wives. You don't want that, trust me. Mormons, Mormons, what am I talking about Mormons? <laughs> Mormons. Uh, marriage is the word I'm trying to say. <laughs> marriage is not an end to itself. Marriage, according to Ephesians chapter 5, is a picture of the gospel. And the gospel is simply this. As with everything else in the book of Proverbs, there's two ways to live. Covenant marriage, sexual infidelity. Words that are wise, words that are foolish. Work that is lazy, work that is good. Well, well, the gospel is also two ways to live. It's a way that lives according to our own desires, our own sin, our own flesh, our own will. Or it's a way to give your life away and follow Jesus. We do this because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave proving that He's the Son of God and that He has the power of God to forgive us our sins and to grant us a kind of life that, like this covenant marriage, is a a whole different level of living. And so no matter what you've done, no matter how many ways you've sinned, no matter how you've dishonored God, the Gospel says that you can be washed and forgiven And not just given a new start, but given a whole new identity. You see, you can belong to Jesus. And once you belong to Jesus, like we heard this morning, you belong to Him forever. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it calls you to marry in a different way than the world does. And it causes you to love in a different way that the world does. But it ends with this glorious culmination where everything is for God and unto God because He is the end of our lives, not love. He is ultimate, not love. And when we see that everything derives from God, we live for Him, we marry for Him, we work for Him, and we die for Him, and we live for Him forever. Father, thank You for Your truth, for the gospel, for these words. I pray that the people who heard me today would would know your grace. 
that those who are in need of deep forgiveness would find it at the cross of Jesus. Would you, with your resurrection power, show us the glory of living to your way instead of our own. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for all the staff people in this room who model that for our college students. And as these college students navigate uh, their romantic lives, I pray they would do it in submission to Jesus under the authority of your word and that you would show them the wonderful things you have planned for them as they live and love to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.